0: I've been taking great delight and inspiration and consolation in the birthing and development of that back altar there. You know, I heard some of you say, mm, yeah, you know, I know I'm not the only one. Isn't it beautiful? Every night when I'm done with my own practice with you and we finish chanting and I finish sitting, I go back there as part of the practice of the day. It's not a separate thing. To go back to that altar and bear witness to what we have put down there, you know, in the lap of Kuan Yin, who is sitting in that posture of royal ease, of presence, embodiedness, uh, wisdom, compassion, ready to respond. And like you, I go back there and I look. The beautiful artwork and the photos and the words and the nature objects, our brothers and our mothers, and this CT scan and that parole date, and those who have died long ago who we honor still. And when I'm back there with that altar, I also acknowledge the unseen on that altar. You know, what we've placed on that altar that we haven't made a little art object or come up with words. You know, how do words describe sometimes what we carry uh, as we came in here as a journey? And you know, So we put them down. We put them down in Kuan Yin's lap. And then we came forward and we sat. And we each have our own place, the chairs, the benches, the cushions. And we sit and we leave that at our back, still held, but we leave it there. And we face what? We face the Buddha and we face Prajnaparamita. So we turn in the direction of wisdom in both its masculine energy and feminine energy. There's a number of you who have been asking me in the last few days, who is this beautiful statue up front? My apologies that we have not introduced her sooner, formally, this is Prajnaparamita, uh, archetype of the mother of the Buddhas. And Prajnaparamita is uh, the term that means the perfection of wisdom. So it's not so much the physical womb of the mother of the Buddha. That was Maya, Queen Maya. Um, But it's more the womb that we all pass through, that awakening arises out of. So we put down. A burden of heart, and we turn towards this wisdom and the whole thing passes through, right? It's like we're sitting in the middle of this, literally. You know, on one side, there's the manifestations of wisdom. On the other side, there's our stories and our lives and what we've been shaken by and touched by and we sit in the center. There's an incredible physical dynamic in this hall. So what I want to talk about tonight are the teachings of equanimity of the eight worldly winds. Because I was thinking about today is a day in a trajectory of retreat and I thought what might be helpful this teaching has been so helpful for me. It's been a real passion in my practice particularly in the last year actually. So what are the eight worldly winds? Sometimes when we're not familiar with the teaching, it's enough of a challenge just to remember what they are. Um, And I know we aren't in a very conceptual place at this point, so whichever ones you remember are probably the ones you need to work with (laughs) right now. So they are gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. So they're pairs and they cycle endlessly through our being human living a life. It's nice to start with the us-ness of it, that it's not something happening to somebody else or it's not something just happening to us. These winds, they blow through our lives. And I really take heart, uh, as clearly Larry does, uh, having given that talk, the whole talk about the cycles of uh, the life of the Buddha and the way that they might inform us. And uh, I also love to use the life story of the Buddha uh, to inform practice and so I look at his life uh, and think about these wins. It's, it's just so easy to think, no matter how many times that we've heard that the Buddha was challenged even after he was the Buddha, there's still some idea. But, you know, were there really challenges? Yes. Was the response completely transformed? Yes. But the challenges were still there. It's this idea of no en- enlightened retirement. Sorry. <laughs> I used to wish for an enlightened retirement. Yeah. Now I just wish for the most freedom possible to be available within a life being lived. That's what I wish for these days. So if we look at his life, as we have been, at you know, first we could look at the challenges to his authority and his praise and blame and fame and disrepute, the more famous he got, the more other wise masters came and challenged his authority and said, Venerable Sir, we think you're wrong. You know Your teachings are not the teachings of awakening. Actually, you're totally out of line. And he'd get in these debates. Challenges to his authority to the point that one time a woman came to him and accused him of getting her pregnant, uh, which of course was not true. But again, when power rises, no matter who it is, there will be challenges. And each of us carries power in our lives, one way or another, no matter how small, no matter how large. And these challenges come. How are we gonna, what, sway in the breeze instead of getting knocked over by the hurricane? He worked with wars, wars among his own people. And their opinions about how he should back them up. He made unpopular decisions. We all have times in our life when we have to make the hard moves for the right reasons. And the one that comes most distinctly to mind to me in this moment was the decision that the Buddha made to ordain women into the monastic life, which was completely counter to every iota of the culture that he lived in. And he made that choice. You think he got praise and blame for that? (laughs) Absolutely. He worked with back pain and illness, the pleasure and the pain. And the story from his life that I'm the most interested in currently is his relationship with his cousin, uh, Devadatta, because I always think that family dynamics are the cutting edge of our Dharma practice. (laughs) And so I'm very interested in how the Buddha related to his family. And Devadatta was his difficult person in metta practice. (laughs) His nemesis from the time he was a a youth. So Devadatta tried to murder him three different times. Uh, And when those three murder attempts failed, then what did he try to do? Still create schisms in the sangha, throwing across praise and blame and trying to put him in a place of disrepute where the entire sangha uh, disappeared. And of course, it didn't work out that way. So it's not just us. Um, One of the community members from uh, Mountain Stream, which is the songer of the community that uh, I'm most affiliated with these days, up in the Sierra Foothills, she came up with a, a way to rhyme these worldly winds in case you've already forgotten what I said they were. So she calls them pleasure and pain, loss and gain, Praise and blame, conceit and shame. So she rhymed them, you know, whatever works. Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, conceit and shame. So, as I said, the eight worldly winds are part of the teaching on equanimity uh, that a number of us have been touching upon all the way through the retreat. Such an important teaching. And so some of the ways that I like to define equanimity, uh, firstly, uh, equanimity as a wise mind at ease with the arising and passing of joys and sorrows of the world. And my favorite current definition of equanimity is a balance of the unruffled heart and mind grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and an appropriate response. So I remember Larry talking about the near opposite of equanimity. Uh, I I like to call the near opposite that which masquerades as. And every Brahma Vihara has a quality which masquerades as it. So the reason I say the masquerading quality is it carries some of the quality of equanimity or or mudita or karuna or metta, etc. But it's a near miss, right? It's not quite. And yet we could take heart that there is part of the quality of equanimity in it. It's just a near miss. So the quality is indifference, which I think of as equanimity minus the caring. And then the far opposite is this attachment or over-involvement when the winds blow. And I love the traditional image of a tree for equanimity in the eight worldly winds, and I think of this tree as you know a great grandmother tree, hundreds of years old, and uh, certainly here in California uh, we have beautiful redwoods, for example, like that. And it's an image of this tree uh, in the summer, in full canopy. There isn't a drought. There's been enough rain. Uh, the roots go deep. And strong and everything's happening through that tree you know uh, beings are being born in that tree they're living their lives animal beings they're passing away there's all these dramas going on with the the nests and the babies and oh one fell out but she flew amazing she made it you know and the fungus creeping up the tree and you know, the the winds blowing and the sun beating and the rain coming down. And there's all these kind of so-called dramas, life events in this tree. And the tree stands firm. So the tree is touched by the winds, um, but in a mature equanimity, not knocked down by the winds. Now, if we think about this as a metaphor, if a hurricane comes through, that tree is going to lose a limb, maybe a major limb. And some of us at certain points have life events where we lose a limb. So it's not saying that we don't get touched. It's not saying that we don't get rocked. But we keep our roots. We know what's true. We know where we most want to come from, even though maybe we didn't come from there in that particular moment, in that particular hurricane of life event. Right? Right? So I wanna talk about some of the wisdom aspects of the Eight Worldly Winds, um, some tools and practices, and just kind of weave through some stories of how different people that I respect have worked with the Eight Worldly Winds skillfully. Those kind of models for how we might find our own creative ways to live a life with wisdom. So I'll start with a quote from the Buddha. And this is from uh, the Failings of the World Sutta. And it goes like this. Gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. Ones welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state one discerns rightly has gone, beyond becoming, to the further shore. So really in that sutta, the invitation of this teaching of the eight worldly winds, both in our retreat training and training living a life, go all the way to freedom, however we want to hold that. It will be no surprise to anybody that I'm about to talk about the three characteristics. It seems to be a favorite topic on this retreat. And there's so many doorways into them. Every aspect of our practice leads to these three wisdom aspects. So we'll start with suffering. And in terms of the eight worldly winds, I want to talk about the hope-fear duality. And the clinging that arises when we get caught in this other pair of hope and fear. We really get rocked by the winds when we get devoured by hope and fear duality. So, if we look at ourselves honestly, we know that we are all creatures longing for comfort, Uh, we're thirsty to get our own way, and we hope for the positive and we fear the negative. For me, the teaching about hope and fear came most fully alive just to come full circle back to the uh, very first Dharma talk that I gave about mindfulness of the body and taking care of the body. This teaching became the most alive uh, during that process of caring for this old knee here when it got injured on retreat all those years ago. And I really fell into quite a despair I had such an idea that practice equaled sitting and walking, and that if I couldn't do that, then freedom wasn't available. It was really a setup for suffering. And I went to one of my teachers at that time, and I'm very grateful to him because he decided to pull out the sword of compassion with me. Instead of going, he had already done the, oh, Heather, I'm so sorry, it's okay, honey, there's no shame in going home, you know, and I said, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere, you know, so we'd already gone through that part, and so I came back in, and I was feeling really down, and I was very caught up in myself, in these worldly winds, you know, it's painful, and I've lost my practice, and the whole thing, and he just looked at me, and he said, you want a teaching? And I said, yeah, I need a teaching. And he said, Heather, the teaching for you is let go of all hope. <laughs> I, know, I don't think my jaw fell off my face, but if jaws could fall off the face, it probably would have. I just thought, What? And it became an open question for me. What does this mean to let go of all hope? And I don't want to answer it too thoroughly because of the power of it is an open question for us over and over again in our lives to let go of all hope. But what I will say is that It showed me directly, not conceptually, this relationship between hope and fear. When I let go of hope, some or a lot, or completely in moments, the fear fell away. The duality was shattered and there was oneness. And in that oneness, there was wisdom and an appropriate response. What was the appropriate response for that? Compassion. It's easy to say that. It's a lot more important that uh, we all experience it, not once, but again and again. And I'm always so touched how many times you come in to visit me in room one, and you say, this insight, and you and kind of scrunch up your eyes a little. I'm not talking about anybody. It happens over and over, and you go, I've had this before. And I smile, I like, go, oh, yeah, we've had them a thousand times. It's always new and fresh. There's always more revealed what does it mean to you in this period of time to let go of all hope? It doesn't mean lose heart, it means lose struggle. So, one piece. A second piece, the truth of change. So with these wins, the fundamental energies that I think of is that we fight them and we accept them. And it's cyclical. Everything is cyclical. I think you've gotten by now that that's a passion of mine, is to look at the cyclical. Uh, So whether it's a cycle of pleasure and pain or gain and loss or the praise and the blame that we give to ourselves, right? And it also comes from out in the world, but here, we're mostly just doing it to ourselves. And then we go through the cycles of narcissism and self-hatred, and we can call that the internal cycle of fame and disrepute, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm the best yogi that ever hit the the land on Spirit Rock. They will be talking about me 20 years from now, you know. I am the worst yogi that ever hit Spirit Rock. They will be talking about me 20 years from now. <laughs> we create our own disrepute. So this fight and accept also cycles. And I like to think about it as, like this image of of a swinging pendulum, And how do we find the middle way? Because uh, the Buddha could have said anything when enlightenment arose within him. What was the very first formal teaching before even the Four Noble Truths came out of him? It was my friends. There are two extremes which ought to be avoided by one who has gone forth on the spiritual path. What two? You know, indulging and denying, basically. Overindulging and overdenying. Ah, extremes. Where's the middle way in all this? So with these winds, where is the middle way is a key question. So I like to think of a, a pendulum And um, because you've been on retreat a long time, I didn't want to actually bring a prop because if I was swinging something, first of all, a lot of your eyes are closed. Second of all, it might be really overwhelming at this point. So (laughs) just use my hands. So it's like, okay, here is the extreme of pick your favorite worldly win duality that's been living through today. And they come into predominance. They come into the foreground and then they move to the background and then another one moves to the foreground and then the background. Everything's like that. So pick your favorite one. Uh, you know, maybe we'll do gain and loss just for experimental purposes. So over here is, you know, I've got it. Over here is, I've lost it. And they're extremes. And one feeds the other because of the hope-fear duality. Right, so it's like I've got it, and then the, whatever it is, and then the fear arises. But what if I lose it? What if I'm going to lose it? I'm going to lose it, and then we freak out over here, and it swings right. And we start small. It's just wow, this meditation is really great. I've got it. What if I lose it? Uh oh, I'm going to lose the concentration. We swing over here. Well, you know, I better bear in a little more. Well. Maybe I should relax and we go back and forth and all the hindrance get kicked up And what happens is it swings more and more without mindfulness and wisdom It just swings more and more and pretty soon we're doing this and it gets more and more extreme I mean We've all seen this in moments But why I like the pendulum image is because if you just look Here's where we get the most extreme here and here these two hands, but what is in the middle There's nothing but space here. It's space pregnant with the possibility of an unhabituated response. Space. I mean, really look, feel, there's so much space. We get so caught up in the extremes and the winds are extreme, but the very extremes themselves could be indicators to us to say, ah, extreme, where's the space? So that's one way of looking at the truth of change. Another way of looking at the truth of change in this teaching is understanding relationships um, and thinking about the interpersonal world. I know, we don't have to go there yet, but we could reflect in terms of the teachings. So I received a teaching when I was studying in Dharamsala, uh, a couple of years ago, Dharamsala, India, from a teacher. Her name was Kelson Wangmo. And I want to say a little bit about her to contextualize this teaching, because um, I really appreciate learning from people who I see embody what they're teaching. And I really feel like she embodies this teaching of understanding changing relationships. So she's uh, German by birth, And she went and ordained in the Vajrayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, when she was 18 years old. And she began studying at that time uh, for a degree in that tradition, which is called the Geshe degree. And basically the Geshe degree, in terms of a Western equivalent, is a PhD times four and a half. So a PhD, if conditions are conducive, takes about four years. A Geshe degree takes 18 years for the first level of Geshe, and then it goes up from there. And Geshe is a title for teacher, in that tradition. And so she began studying, this young 18-year-old woman. When I studied with her, she's a few years older than I am, and uh, she had just completed her degree, but there was a problem. And the problem was that there had never been a Western woman who had completed their Geshe degree. What to do? And she ran smack into uh, an entire thousands of years of basically a patriarchal model of the tradition, where all of the Geshes were male. And so I talked to her about this, you know, as another young woman teacher. And I said, how do you work with this? How do you work with the fact that you devoted your whole life to your practice, to the study, to these teachings, and there isn't uh, the basic respect of a title? And her response really touched me. Um, What she said was, you know, Heather, I did the study and the practice for the study and practice sake. I didn't do it to become anyone or anything. And, you know, it just so happened that I finished this piece. And what I see, she said, is that the high lamas, the senior teachers in my tradition, treat me with all of the respect of a geshe. And the other thing that she said was, this conditioning has taken thousands of years to be built. Who am I to come in here now and say, we're gonna take apart thousands of years of conditioning right now when I want it? And I thought, wow. And she said, and so I'm patient and I teach and I continue speaking the truth. I continue being in dialogue with the tradition. I don't avoid it, but I'm not going to be in conflict with it because that's not how I want this degree to be conferred. And it's not about me. It's about change in a system. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of wins in that and a lot of equanimity. So she wasn't denying it and she wasn't drowning in it and she was responding skillfully within the context of what she was working with. you know, Which is not the same context that we work with here in the West, by the way. So it's not completely an apropos, you know. Um, it doesn't quite work, because we're talking about a different culture. So the teaching that she offered was a teaching of understanding changing relationships. And this thing about praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And so, you know, you could look at her life and say, ah, you know, here she came in this kid, 18 years old and became a student. And probably there was a lot of flutter within the system. Who is this young woman who has come from the West to study? And, you know, I bet she became a little famous then, you know, within that. And, you know, then I bet she went through a cycle of who does she think she is, (laughs) you know, because this is what happens. And I'm talking about her, but I'm talking about the systems that we work in. The fame and disrepute, the praise and the blame of her as a teacher. And so the teaching that she gave is that the relationships are constantly changing and let's not concretize a particular moment in the relationship, but see it as a progression, which is really what she's talking about in terms of going for the long haul of seeing system level change where there was suffering. And so she said, let's just take a close relationship like a partner or a best friend. At some point you didn't know that person. They were a stranger to you and you went along and you lived your life just fine and they didn't exist in your world. Stranger. And then you met them and they became a familiar stranger in the meta categories. And then perhaps they became a good friend in the meta categories. And then they became the dear one, same person that we didn't know those years ago, everything was fine. Then we sort of, now all the decisions, every moment of our life is being impacted by this person. Wow. They're the center of our interrelational life, right? And then what happens? We get in a fight with them. There's a conflict. There's a disconnect. Ah, do they become the enemy? Maybe. Sometimes they do, right? Yeah. Sometimes our best friends, our partners become an enemy for a time or a difficult person, if enemy is too strong a word, same person. And then they might become a good friend again, or then they might become a familiar stranger or an absolute stranger, same person, same relationship. This is so obvious, but when we plug in our loved one into that slot, can we see it? Can we have the equanimity to see, ah, it's changing over time. And so the winds of the difficulty or how much we love them are less personal. They have less impact. It's a great teaching. I use it in my daily life all the time. So I'm happy to let you know that after I left Armsala, um, Actually, conditions came together for Kelsen Wangmo that she has been formally um, conferred the title of Geshe, you know, with, with all of the honors that that uh, is offered. You know? So that's a happy ending to that story. But I really appreciated the spirit that she brought to it and you know, that she was willing to blow in the winds and be touched by the winds and stay clear and compassionate and proactive and patient We can do that. So then there's not self, right? There's non-duality. And in terms of the wins, what's really helpful to look at is the selfing process that we do, that we've been investigating very deeply all the way through the month. Uh, And in certain ways, I have to say at this point, I feel that anything I might have to say on this topic is almost extra. Because we've all learned a lot, even if we don't feel like we've learned a lot. And um, I have a deep trust that we've learned and that we are learning and that we will learn exactly what we need to learn. But the truth is, when we look at this non-duality or not-self and the worldly winds of how we get rocked, um, you know, we start with a basic confusion and then we move into duality. There's a basic split of I and you and I and this object, you know, I and this object at the sense doors as if they're kind of separate things. You know, and on a relative level, they, of course, are separate things. There's fear in that that comes out of the grasping and the rejecting. And what do we do? We develop personality solidification. And the more the personality solidifies, the more we other. And we other inside ourself, and we other parts of ourself. Uh, We other interpersonally, and we other in systems. And, of course, this leads to praise and blame and fame and disrepute and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. Basically, we believed the world that we created in our own minds. We took it to be real. So, I wanted to bring back in this quote from Mahagosananda uh, that Larry shared what it feels like ages ago now. It's probably just a week ago. Uh, I use it as a practice instruction in my own practice, and that's why I want to bring it in again. He says, The thought becomes the word. The word transforms into the deed. The deed hardens into the character. The character manifests as the destiny. So, watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love out of respect for all beings. I really look at that quote as a complete instruction in wisdom and compassion. When we drop into our own understanding, as we do, we slip behind the lines of the mental chatter that we believe and rest in what could be called the single taste of the winds blowing. It's just winds blowing at that point. It's just, oh, painful experience. Oh, pleasurable experience. Oh, a sense door experience imputed with the label gain. It's just the winds blowing. And there's an ease with that. We can relish in our own humanness instead of drowning. So I thought I would just go through these uh, four pairs and talk a little bit about each one in terms of uh, some practices. And the first duality is this pleasure and pain. And the aspect that I wanted to highlight with this particular duality is uh, what? how do we practice with these bodies? Well, we revisit this again and again and again. And I have to say, just for the purpose of bringing language to this, I'm going to break apart these dualities and say, ah, this tool for this, that tool for that. The truth is all the tools work for all of them because in the end it's just the single taste of the winds blowing and our appropriate response to meet them. So it looks like it's all separate, but it's actually not. How do we practice with these bodies? So this is um, from the same sutta, The Failings of the World. It's, It's quite a long sutta from the Buddha. He says, In the sky, O practitioners, various kinds of winds are blowing. Winds from the east, the west, the north, the south. Winds carrying dust and winds without dust. Winds hot and cold, gentle and fierce. Similarly, monks, there arise in this body various kinds of feelings. Pleasant feelings arise, painful feelings arise, and neutral feelings arise. Just like the winds. Some of them are carrying dust. Some of them are hot. Some of them are cold. Ah, Vedna, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Bringing in the life story of the Buddha and my interest in his uh, connection with his cousin Devadatta Devadatta's second uh, murder attempt on the Buddha was by his own hand. I'm sure some of you um, have heard this story. The first murder attempt, he actually tried to get somebody else to murder the Buddha. And of course, when that person came in contact with the Buddha, the presence of the Buddha, he just walked away and went back to Devadatta and said, forget it, find somebody else to kill this guy, I'm not doing it. You know? (laughs) So Devadatta took things into his own hands and said, okay, I'll take him out myself. And he, uh, this occurred in Rajgir, uh, you know, in the area of Vulture's Peak. Um, and so Devadatta went up on the mountain and he found a large boulder and he knocked it down the mountain to kill the Buddha. And the way that the story goes is as the boulder fell down this mountain, it hit another boulder and diverged from the path of the Buddha, yet a sliver from that boulder um, got dislodged and pierced the Buddha's foot and drew blood. So the Buddha did not get by unscathed by that. And we too do not get by unscathed. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. And those are the wins. So I'm curious, in occasions like that, what is the Buddha's response? So this is from the sutta called the Stone Sliver. I've heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Rajgir. Now at that time, his foot had been pierced by a stone sliver excruciating were the bodily feelings that developed within him. Painful, fierce, sharp, racking, repellent, disagreeable. You know, I mean we we haven't been hit by slivers in our feet, I hope, but we all know these sensations. We've been sitting here long enough. <laughs> Painful, fierce, sharp, racking, repellent and disagreeable. So what did he do? But he endured them, Mindful, alert, and unperturbed. I love that word, unperturbed. Not a great word. <sighs> Having had his outer robe folded in four and laid out, he lay down on his right side in the lion's posture with one foot placed on top of the other, mindful and alert. Okay, that's a pretty high bar. <sighs> no. not saying that we've always responded to painful physical sensations in the body with with that level and yet when I look at this in a different way I think what did he do? First of all he didn't freak out. Uh, Second of all he didn't lash out. Uh, Thirdly there was mindfulness which we all know how to do in moments And fourthly, there was a skillful means of a compassionate response. He didn't keep walking. He was going somewhere. He didn't keep walking. Oh, I'm fine. My foot's bleeding all over the place. And, you know, I'm fine. He laid down and said, Ah, the body is in pain. I could lay down. Mindful and alert. Yeah. Um, We can learn from this pleasure and pain in these winds. Because what happens? We lash out. We lash out internally and externally. We lose mindfulness and get caught up in the story Uh, and we don't take care when there's pain. Uh, pleasure. Again, we get, we get consumed and we move out of ourselves. And you could also say we don't take care of ourselves because we're actually lost in the storm of pleasure. And we'll chase after that thing at all costs, totally lose ourselves. You know? So tools for this, you know, firstly, embodiment. Pleasure and pain, whether it's mental or physical, this piece about coming home to the body, we say it over and over again, it's very obvious. And so many of you have come to me and said, Heather, you've said this over and over again. And then in a moment I landed in the body and it was amazing. The whole of the Dharma was revealed there. You know, so I'll keep saying it, keep saying it. We can make space for it. We can really see this pendulum of extremes that we get caught up in and realize, ah, there's enough space to take a breath with, you know, being swept away by pleasure or being consumed by pain. There's enough space to take a breath. There's enough space in the world to hold the intensity when it gets intense. We can see and know the cycles. We know it's going to change, right? Okay. Gain and loss. I thought I would speak the unspeakable and talk about leaving the retreat. I know we're not supposed to talk about that yet, but... It's on our minds, right? It comes, it goes. It doesn't have to be the whole of our reality because we're here. And truthfully, an entire lifetime is going to come and go before we walk out the door. And that's wonderful and amazing. And yet the mind leans forward. And gain and loss, right? What do we gain by leaving here? Maybe we gain friends, family, technology, a mocha. <laughs> you <know? laughs> a movie, (laughs) you know, choices that we don't have here in the simplicity. It's a lot of gain, Uh, maybe. Depends on how we interpret it. I mean, all these things are really about perspective and interpretation. And one thing that can be a gain today is a loss tomorrow. And what do we lose? My practice, my concentration, my insight, the depth, the simplicity, the silence. How am I going to bear this? Can I face the world in this vulnerability? You know, and it feels like a loss. So, how do we work with this? One thing that comes to mind that feels very important uh, is thinking about ground. And remembering that when the Buddha was rocked by the winds of the Ten mar- Armies of Mara, he touched the earth. And we could too. You know, we can walk on the Earth. The Earth is our witness to our right to have an appropriate response to this moment. You know, it's our witness to all the good intention and sincerity of our practice. We can touch the Earth. Uh, we can ground when we're feeling really swept away with the uh <laughs> the gain and the loss. Ground is so important in the cycle of the retreat. The energy gets big. Everything gets more in a different way. I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to give you ideas about how it's going to be because who knows. But it is a different cycle that we're in now. Uh, Ground's important. Uh Sometimes at this point in the retreat, I go up in the hills when I've sat at myself and I just sing. I just take a big breath and just sing and feel my feet on the ground, and the space and the earth and just feeling the, the longing to step into the gain sooner and the grief of the perceived loss. And none of it's as real as we think. I'll just let it move through. Notice I say I go up in the hills. <laughs> I don't do it down here. (laughs) Um, Because we're not doing a singing retreat, although they are lovely. So praise and blame. In terms of a theme for that, I was thinking about uh, this journey that each of us has been on with the judgmental mind. And Donald and I have a great passion for the teachings for working with the judgmental mind. And so on a retreat like this, the praise and blame is, the majority of it is internal, which is why I want to talk about it that way now. Obviously, uh, in other segments of our life, it's externally based as well. But the truth is, is when we learn tools for the internal base, they translate to the external base. And I feel like that's, an edge of our practice as a community, which is extremely important. Here we are, we've spent a month or two months doing this training. And the burning question always is, how do I translate this into my life? How do I bridge? This work that we're doing of bridging the inner and outer, uh, which there will be more teachings on as we continue our journey, um, is the gift that we as a community have to give because of the depth of training that we've done. And I thank you for the work that you're already doing to bridge these. The world needs this bridging. So we'll work with the internal praise and blame in terms of what I'm about to share, knowing that we will each find our way to creatively translate that into the external praise and blame. Some tools that Donald and I find are extremely helpful for working with the kind of judgmental, critical uh, version of the mind that does a lot of praising and blaming and uh, putting ourselves up and putting ourselves down, basically. Uh, Firstly, a basic tool but very important, uh, the noting practice. Knowing what we're doing when it's happening. Ah, caught in a cycle of praise. Ah, caught in a cycle of blame. If we can start there, then there's all these choices available. Uh, Without that moment of mindfulness, there aren't so many choices available. Working with it in the body and listening to the echo, the somatic echo is really important when we notice that we're in one of these cycles, any of the winds, really. We can name it and then we feel it. It's exactly the same as the Brahma Vihara practice. We drop in a phrase and then we feel the echo in the body. We listen for the echo. We can do the same with the mental noting practice and it really helps with these worldly winds. The Brahma Viharas themselves are tremendous antidotes when we're being rocked by the winds and we choose the flavor that feels most applicable in the moment. Yeah metta, karuna, mudita, Upeka. Sometimes it's the cousins, gratitude, forgiveness. When we get very, very caught in a worldly wind cycle, uh, to just simply say, okay, this is true, and I'm going to bring in actually a different set of thoughts, really helps, these Brahma-Vihara wishes. Inquiry can play a role. Uh, at a certain point. Uh, Dropping in and asking an open question. What does this cycle of praise have to reveal? What is the deepest wisdom that this cycle of blame has to reveal? And it's an open question. We can't conceptually answer it, but we can drop in the question with the intention to hear the wisdom that's available. When, what, how, we don't know. So then this last pair, uh, fame and disrepute, again, it's kind of interesting to look at this in a retreat environment because we tend to think of fame and disrepute as um, primarily externally based, what others do to us. And yet, we're our own superstar and our own Worst person that ever lived on the earth, as seen by everybody else. We can walk around here on this retreat and think that everyone is hating us and everyone is judging us and that they've created a whole identity for us that we're then living out based on our perception that they're doing this to us. It all gets very complicated, right? (laughs) And actually, we're just walking around going down to get some tea. (laughs) Mine's very complicated. So, really, this selfing process, as our own system throws its arrows and as the world throws its arrows, is very important. I wanted to share a quote from Lumpur Somedo that uh, I actually use as a practice instruction in this regard. He says, We create personalities out of our thoughts, which are based on extremes, which makes us neurotic. This is a practice of not going to extremes. Extremes of, I want this, I don't want that, not making problems out of things. Could we bear up when somebody is not just blaming us, but creating a whole identity for us around that blame, you know, disrepute arises out of that. You know, it's it's a concretization of self that is placed on us and that we place on ourselves, and we can make a real case for why it's true, right? Uh, and it's a process. It's a process that the world engages in, and it's really painful either way, because wow. You know, let me just speak in my role as a teacher. When you put me up on a pedestal, it's a setup. It's a setup. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to fall. you know. And I'm just sitting here. I'm just sitting here minding my own business, caring about you. But <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, and especially with any perceived power dynamics, we do it in a more extreme way. And the up of the fame is higher and the fall is lower. And it's actually just rising and falling and rising and falling with a lot of selfing. And it hurts. And we know that. So, some tools. You know. First of all, understanding mudita and uh, karuna. You know, joy and compassion. When it's time to have a compassionate response with either the arrow that's being thrown at us or that we're throwing at ourselves. And when it's time to actually take heart and celebrate good fortune. Ah! You know, somebody has received, quote-unquote, like, metaphorical fame. You know? Or someone's just given me a compliment and I just saw the whole selfing process come together as I am great. And it's like famous in that moment, right? <laughs> um, we could tease out the, the joy part of it and just go, oh yeah, the rest of it's extra, you know, but I can appreciate. I find compassion practice really helpful with fame and disrepute. You know? And it's compassion for me and it's compassion from wherever it's, co- it's coming from because it's just painful. It's just painful and I care. I care about this pain. I know it's gonna keep happening because we're human and it's just these winds just keep blowing. They're gonna keep blowing and they die down in us, but then we're in a system where the winds are blowing strong. So maybe we have tremendous equanimity and the system we're in is like this hurricane going on. Ah, I could have compassion and knowing that it's gonna change, always. It's going to change. So I'll tell you one more teaching that my teacher from Thailand uh, gave me a different year. So I told you one year, the teaching that he gave me for the whole year was, take care of the body, Heather. not some great study, not some great retreat, not some great meditation practice, just, Heather, take care of the body, would you? That was one year. A different year, I sat down with him, and I said, okay, what should I practice for the next year? Now that's a heck of a question. And yet, you know, sometimes we ask our teachers that, what should I practice for the next year? And he said to me, Heather, For the next year, I want you to practice this. No matter what you're doing, he basically said, forget meditation. You're going to meditate. I know you're going to meditate. This is a practice for meditation, non-meditation. Every moment of your life for the next year, practice this teaching. The teaching is, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're saying, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what's going on in your world, notice the liking And disliking of it and when you notice the liking and disliking of it what he said was cut out and what he meant was have the mindfulness of it and then move into a place of more spaciousness more freedom more appropriate response than acting out of that habit pattern it sounds really easy I spent a whole year doing that all the time. You know, so cycles, right? Sometimes it was incessant, sometimes it was tiresome, sometimes I forgot, sometimes it was illuminating. But I learned a lot about the winds through that because, you know, it's just like these constant winds of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And they're just blowing through, and it's like, hmm, is there liking or disliking in this moment? Could I stop the cycle of dependent origination right there? Now, I am very relieved that he did not say to me, no matter what you're doing, no matter how, f- how fast you're moving, notice vedna every second. You know? He gave me a break. He's, you know, By saying notice liking or disliking, what he meant was, if you don't catch the, the vedna of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and it goes to liking, that's fine. Catch it right there and stop. You know? Incredible practice for the winds of our lives. When I think about what the benefits are of um, specifically practicing with these eight worldly winds, I think about that when we experience um, interdependence and equality, that we can actually better celebrate our diversity. In seeing our usness, we can appreciate uniqueness, you know, simultaneously. And that there's kind of a maturity in it. There's a maturity in the aspect of really, really living in the process of change and not fighting it so hard. And most of all, what I love about this practice is the sense of trust and safety and refuge that develops that is based internally and not externally. And that's really what we're doing here. All the practices lead to the same thing. So I'll leave you with a quote from, that's actually attributed to Kuan Yin, which is one of the archetypal manifestations of compassion. She says, The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom could they harm? Say it again. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom could they harm? So that is what I have to offer for your reflection this evening. And as always, thank you for the kindness of your attention. Thank you for listening.